Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Well, it is 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 73 degrees. Time now for one of my favorite guests, Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you this evening? Very well, indeed. Listen, a lot to talk about. I had a couple of weeks off there. Uh, and I haven't chatted with you for a while. Certainly, uh, I want to get your take on the degree to which Hurricane Harvey has upended the political discourse in Washington. It seems to me this is a pretty profound, obviously a, a terrible tragedy, but it certainly has readjusted, I think, the focus for the Trump agenda, who just a few weeks ago, he was talking about shutting down the government if he didn't get the money for his wall. That's not going to happen anymore, is it? It's not going to happen anymore, but you're right. Let's take us back about two weeks ago. He was, we're talking about Congress having to um, extend the debt ceiling. Donald Trump wanted to connect to that, saying that he wouldn't go along with supporting a raise in the debt ceiling unless there was money for the wall. And what's now happened is that clearly a major, a major natural disaster. I'll also point out here is that Take us back a few years ago with Hurricane Sandy. There was tremendous opposition among many Republicans for for relief for Hurricane Sandy. And in fact, the argument was that any money that was going to be spent for disaster relief for Hurricane Sandy had to be cut out of other spending. Now what we're seeing here is Donald Trump giving up the... And the person leading that charge was Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Of course, of course. And he was concerned about what? About about the mounting deficit and about money being spent for disaster relief and saying that states like New Jersey and that should be able to handle, you know, fend for themselves. Now suddenly we saw Donald Trump by midweek um, do an about face and say that that he's not going to hold up um, uh, the extension of debt relief contingent upon um, upon getting money for the wall. In fact, he sort of has stopped yet again talking about the wall because he's done that a couple of times. And now the focus is on trying to get almost $10 billion in terms of debt relief with Ted Cruz, among other people, leading the charge in terms of trying to get that money. So so we're no longer, I think, having a serious discussion about, about how to help Texas um, or about disaster relief. Whether or not um, we're at a point where we're beyond the issue of perhaps the government shutting down because of extending the debt ceiling, I don't know. But I suspect that's fading because of the importance of trying to address the problems in Texas. And, and, you know, to what degree, though, I mean, obviously the the wall can't go. This is the the rebuilding process is just this is going to be billions of dollars. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some estimates now. Ter- well, for two things. First, I've seen estimates for the rebuilding of Houston and rebuilding on Texas into Louisiana. I've seen some estimates of 160 to more to 100, to 200 to 300 billion dollars. And so, keep in mind the fact that I think I've also read something to the effect of less than what one out of five people have flood insurance, and we're looking at potentially an enormous amount of capital 
private and public having to be spent to rebuild Houston and um, part of Corpus Christi, Beaumont, and so forth, that's going to drain away construction dollars and drain away, let's say, construction companies from having been able to build the wall to do other things. I just see at this point the wall almost being dead as an issue going forward um, from a logistical issue in a financial issue if it wasn't dead before. Let, let me ask you, and obviously the climate change debate continues, but there, all scientists here say that these kinds of events, these kinds of storms are going to last longer, they're going to be more severe, we're going to see more of them. Is this potentially going to affect that discourse as well? Perhaps, yes, because... We have to be thinking in terms of the fact that, again, you know, the whole issue of global warming has taken on an incredible partisan dimension for the last few years, but now we have to be thinking about how we're going to spend our resources and spend money to rebuild, you know, basically, again, Houston and the Texas coast. Whether it makes sense to say we should be continuing to build on the coast, should we be moving back a little bit further, should we be doing something different in terms of maybe, I don't know, I'm going to say, do we build a wall um, along the, the Gulf Coast, for, you know, which is not feasible, of course, you know, along, along Texas. But, but clearly, I think anybody who's thinking about spending money in terms of rebuilding Texas has to be thinking in terms of, do we, do we want to basically turn our back on what climate scientists are telling people in terms of the fact that these kind of storms, these kind of hurricanes are going to be more or frequent over the next few years, or do you throw caution to the wind and just say, we're just going to ignore all this? And so I, I think all that's tremendously important in terms of how it affects the political discourse. But I want to throw something else also in here, too, is that many of you, you probably saw it today as I did, when I paid almost a quarter more today for a gallon of gas. Right. Um, and one of the things that the oil companies have done, and it makes sense on one level, is to put all the refineries and all the major storage tanks very close to one another because it becomes economically efficient to do that. But to what point do you now say that because of the increase in global warming, because of the increased chance of these storms occurring, do you have to now move refineries? Do you have to maybe move um, storage tanks and put them in other locations so we don't literally put all of our eggs in one basket in one location? So I think this has tremendous implications, not just for, for, for the government, but in terms of how many companies might want to think about investing, especially in terms of the energy sector. We have yet, of course, to see what the full implications are going to be in terms of how Harvey has changed political discourse, how it's changed let's see, these, these private investment types of decisions. But you have to be thinking that with the bill being probably a quarter of a trillion dollars, if not more, people are going to be thinking very carefully before they say, let's put money back in the same place and the same location and rebuild there without taking into consideration climate science, climate science reality. Right, of which, of which many in the Trump administration don't believe that it is happening. That's right. And, this is, and, and you know, they would have to sort of say this is just the, the freak. You know, a lot of people are looking at it saying this is what, the once-in-1,000-year storm or something like that. And I know you're going to see a lot of people arguing and saying, well, this is only going to happen you know, you know, you know, once in a 1,000 years. And even before global warming started kicking in, um, meteorologists will tell you that that's a bad, bad metaphor there. When they say once in a thousand years, they literally don't mean it's happening once every thousand years or it's going to happen now and never again. 
But even if that was the case, the fact that we have this global warming occurring means that the probability, as you pointed out, of these violent storms occurring um, is much more frequent. I'm trying to think of what year was it now? Was it 2000 and whatever it was, five or six, when Katrina occurred or something yes. like that? I'm trying to, and, and Katrina was supposed to be the once-in-a-thousand-year storm. Well, now we've had two major devastating storms down there um, in, in, in barely a decade. It's, 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 it's something that I think people have to be thinking about in terms of how, how they want to build and, get, and invest in the infrastructure in Texas going forward. So this will be fascinating to watch yet again in terms of um, the political discourse because players such as the Army Corps of Engineers, the EPA, um, Small Business Association, FEMA, are all going to have to chime in on, on a lot of things going on down the future. And if they want to deny the reality of these storms becoming more frequent, then it's probably not going to be the best choices that we make in terms of spending our dollars. But if the storm does change things, that's going to be fascinating to watch politically. All right. We're chatting with Professor David Schultz. We're going to take a quick break. After the break, I'm going to ask him about his thoughts on the president's reaction to the storm. Uh, the president was in Texas for the second time in a week and almost seemed to be relishing the opportunity to show his command uh, and to show his leadership in this crisis that is uh, submerged an entire state, entire region underwater. Keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 it is 819 in the Twin Cities, as May Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, it almost seems as if the president um, really seemed to, and I don't mean to just sound sure. this, that he almost seems sort of, well, he seemed to really welcome the opportunity to deal with a crisis that was not of his own making and, and show that he's in charge. Yeah, I think you're right. But it's important to think of, too, the fact that there was two visits he made this week. The earlier one was heavily criticized by many people, you know, criticized by the fact that he didn't meet with the victims, he didn't go into the flood area, um, and some people criticized him for maybe being less than compassionate. And also, I would say, and you probably saw it too, there was an awful lot of catty comments I thought about about what his wife was wearing too. Um, and so, right, well, yeah, yeah the, the original, um, yeah, I mean, and it... it you know, she originally emerged from the, the White House, right. and it looked like sort of a fashion shoot. She was in stilettos right. and with a silk bomber jacket and uh, very large aviators and had her hair, you know, perfectly blown out. By the right. time she got to Texas, she was in, I think, sneakers. That's right. uh, she was wearing a hat that I thought seemed – I, you know, I just couldn't, couldn't imagine Barbara Bush wearing the hat or, or, or Michelle right. Obama, but it said FLOTUS on it, you know, That's First right. Lady of the United States. That's right. um, today, right. she was in a hat uh, that said Texas, which right. looked That's a little right. better. Right, but the point I'm getting, getting at here is that the, the first trip, I think it was, it was criticized, but I think the second trip, Trump, I think you're absolutely right, he has an opportunity to look presidential, a sense in which, again, the news shifts away from all the problems occurring within his administration to him going to Texas, trying to look like, you know, and, 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 you know that he cares. And, he, and, and I, I'm not saying he doesn't, but it can look like he cares, that he's interested, that he wants to manage this, proper, this, this, this disaster relief properly. And so it really does give him a very, very good opportunity um, to have um, some ability to, to to shift the dialogue a little bit, because clearly in the last, well, I was going to say for most of his administration, but certainly in the last few weeks, 
the 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 imagery and the dialogue, the narrative about about his leadership has not been very strong. Right. And, and, you know, this is something obviously that, that he is doing. And I think that that is a role that our presidents have taken on increasingly uh, as sort of consoler in chief. And so these images were, I think, you know, he was actually handing out meals at a, you know, at, at one of the shelters or the biggest shelter there. This is something he wants to do. I mean, it's gonna be very difficult, though, obviously, th- this this process and what you were saying is, the recovery effort, I mean, how much do you put back into some of these communities that are so likely to flood again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometime soon? I mean, these are going to be really difficult tasks that are going to consume his administration, you know, for the rest of this first term. I think so. I think, I think we're looking at probably it being years and years before the rebuilding is complete. In fact, there's lots of rebuilding that still hasn't been completed as a result of Katrina. And what we're going to see here is so much time, so many resources are going to be committed to this. And going back to what we were talking about before break is that it will require um, probably significant uh, public investments to rebuild lots of Texas because it's going to be very hard, I think, to turn away you know, literally, what, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who didn't have flood insurance and say, you know, you know, I'm sorry. You're out of luck. You're out of luck. Huh? And so I think there's going to be enormous pressure there to do something. And I think there's an, an, an interesting opportunity here for the Republicans especially because I think one of the criticisms that they levied against Obama, and, and, it's, and it's a fair one of, of Obama and Bush, is that when the financial crash happened in 2008, 2009, the focus was on bailing out the banks and not on, on, let's say, homeowners and average people. Here, this is going to be an interesting test now. Do you walk away from not helping all those individuals who have been wiped out, or do you put money into it? And I think if you put money into it, it's going to require um, amounts that are going to be probably in the tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's going to force Republicans to really shift in terms of how they think about the federal government. You know, for, for a party that has been very, very critical of, of the federal government, they may now be embracing or potentially embracing the federal government to help in terms of solving the problems in Texas. And, and, and th- there's nobody, this is just too big. There's no other entity that can do it. There is no other entity that can do this because it's, it's not only the capital that's required, but it's the type of coordination that's required in terms of being able to solve this. Because if we, if we think about partly one of the problems that, that Houston faced, Houston was what, the fourth largest city in the United States. Yes. It had no zoning, no planned development. Um, yeah, it's, 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 just, it's just sprawl. It just sprawled yeah, everywhere. Uh, um, I remember from the days when I lived in Texas. You know, I, um, and Houston just sprawled all over the place. Well, now if you're thinking about rebuilding, you probably have to be thinking about it in terms of how you plan the development, how you maybe start to consider zoning, how you start to think about building in like levy or flood wall systems like they've had in, um, uh, in New Orleans, for example. All this is going to require a scale of planning that is beyond, I think, what the city of Houston can do and perhaps what the private sector can do. It's going to need some larger coordination. So it'll, be, it'll also be interesting to see if money will go into FEMA just for logistics. Because the Trump administration wanted to cut 
funding for FEMA. Exactly, exactly. And so at, this is the point now where you probably need to be beefing up FEMA at this point to be able to undertake kind of long-term strategic planning for what you want to do, not just for Houston, but from an area that literally goes from Corpus Christi, you know, practically, you know, well, almost, I'm going to say, almost back to New Orleans, you know, in terms of how it wrapped around. We're looking at a distance, I'm going to guess here, in terms of a seven, 800 miles of coastal region, if not more, um, that has to be rethought. Absolutely. Uh, well, let me ask you this, and you know, I want to shift gears here. Um, there are a lot of people already talking about you know, people lining up for 2020 uh, in terms of running against the president, and there's also discussion that, that Republicans, people like Mike Pence, are, are already kind of you know, you know, poking around. Pence adamantly denies it. Is, is how, big, how big will the handling of, of this crisis play in terms of 2020? I think if, if the Trump administration or Donald Trump himself isn't able to execute this very well, then I think this becomes, of course, not just a big issue for 2018 in terms of how it plays out, much in the same way. Katrina did. Yeah, yeah, much in the same way of how Bush was hugely criticized for their mishandling of, of Katrina. Um, here, I think it plays into 2018, and then, of course, It'll play largely into this, again, this, this narrative that the Trump administration is unable to govern, unable to um, provide leadership. And so I would think that clearly by the time we get to um, right after the 2018 elections is when people start to seriously, you know, walk, not walk, fly to Iowa, you know, to start to, you know, test the grounds and stuff like that for the presidential election. I think by then we will have a much better picture um, of, of how um, vulnerable um, Donald Trump is, even within his own party. Because we'll have two things on collision course. Whatever's happening from Katrina, or not Katrina, whatever's happening from Harvey in terms of how it plays out. And, of course, the ongoing um, Russian probe investigation um, by Mueller. Those two things, I think, are going to have huge bearings, both on the 2018 elections and upon decisions by Pence and others in terms of whether or not they want to take on an incumbent president um, within their own party for 2020. All right. We're chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, We are going to take a break and give you some weather after the break and after weather. Uh, Let's talk about 2018 and and the elections here. We have an election for governor, United States senator, Senator Amy Klobuchar is up for re-election. And then you've got half the races for U.S. Congress are going to be hotly contested once again. So keep it right here, folks. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 833 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy. Uh, along with Kevin Reed, our studio coordinator, we are chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Uh, your thoughts on the 2018 elections, uh, obviously uh, a lot at stake here. The congressional races here, we're going to have four races that are going to get an awful lot of money being poured into them. Yeah, this is really interesting because of the 435 congressional races, House of Representative races in the United States, the best estimates are that maybe 20 to 25, let's push it, maybe 30 of them are, are swing seats, those that are really contested by two major parties. We have four of those in the state of Minnesota. And so 
So I should say right off the bat that WCCO might be very, very happy next year because there will be a lot of advertising dollars that will come into the state of Minnesota. I mean, we know, for example, in the 8th District, you know, the, um, the Stuart Mills, you know, the, the Rick Nolan races the last couple of times have attracted amounts in, what, approximately, you know, $20, $25 million each race. And we're looking to see the same thing perhaps in terms of the Eric Paulson district, and we're also seeing the same thing in terms of, of Jason Lewis. And remember that Tim Waltz has said that he's going to be running for governor, not running for re-election. That seat's going to be contested. So there's going to be an enormous amount of political advertising dollars pouring into the state of Minnesota. And even though it's a slim chance um, that the Democrats in a good year could take back uh, the House of Representatives next year. Uh, four of those seats um, or, um, that are critical um, are here. Granted that we have um, two of them that are held by Democrats, two by Republicans, but two seats picked up by Democrats here would get them towards where they need to be in terms of taking back the House. Well, the... Um uh, election of Jason Lewis, I mean, he handily beat Angie Craig uh, in 2016. That's going to be a rematch, essentially, for all yeah. intents and purposes at this point. Obviously, other contenders could emerge, but mm-hmm. it's hard to see Jason Lewis, who did beat her really pretty handily, you know, see that changing unless there's some sort of national tide against Republicans. Right, and keep in mind that usually the president's party in the at the midterm elections of a first term, doesn't do very well. And, and if, in fact, Trump remains as unpopular as he does nationwide, if that trend means anything, then it sets up a possibility you know, to make uh, Jason Lewis you know, vulnerable. Offset that, though, with the fact that in non-presidential election years, more Democrats stay home than do Republicans. The upshot is I think that's going to be a very, very competitive race. Um, again, we know both sides are going to put um, an incredible amount of money into it. Jason Lewis last time I think was pretty significantly outspent you know, by, Angie, he was. Uh, by Angie Craig and the Democrats. I don't think he'll be quite that vulnerable this time in terms of the financial disadvantage. I think he's going to be um, much better shape. I haven't seen any of his numbers yet in terms of you know, looking at what his – fundraising is looking like at this point, but you'll see him raise a lot more money and third-party groups, PACs and that, will put a lot of money into that race too. And uh, Congressman Lewis has been very vocal, uh, basically sort of defending the Trump administration, sort of siding with the president. That has not been the case uh, in some cases with Congressman Eric Paulson, who really is taking heat over this issue of not holding town hall meetings. Is that just sort of a distraction, or does that have any traction? It's some distraction, because I think the people who have been mostly yelling about that have been DFLers, have been Democrats, but, but, what they, but, they're, but they're, and so, it, it, so they need to sort of make something more out of that in terms of saying that uh, he is... He's not holding those town hall meetings. He's not being accountable. But linking that, I think, to positions that Eric Paulson has, because otherwise, I think that's a good rallying cry for for Democrats. But what Democrats really need to do in that district is is really start to move some of those swing voters, what few there are, over to their side um, to do a better job in terms of perhaps mobilizing more Democrats, you know, who might not be quite as firmly 
part of the Democratic base, some others. And so, again, right now, I think it's, I think it's more the issue of, of it's more inside baseball, inside politics. But I think the other thing that may be changing this time coming around also is that the, the one, you know, there's a couple of candidates announced. One of them um, has quite a bit of money. I think the Democrats are going to put far more money into this race than they have previously because I really don't think they've really invested in this race very much, you know, you know, you know, in the last couple, last two or three times that Paulson's run. Uh, in terms of the U.S. Senate race, um, you do have the extraordinarily popular Senator Amy Klobuchar running. Uh, she won all but two of Minnesota's, what, 87 counties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is one Republican who's come forward, Representative Jim Newberger. It's very difficult to envision a scenario where Senator Amy Klobuchar doesn't walk away with this. Yeah, I think it's going to be, I think the odds of her losing um, are, are, are slim. And, and she's going to have tremendous financial advantage going into this race, not, not just including his pop, her popularity and her name recognition. And the reason why I mention this is that given the fact that there's going to be four House of Representative seats that are going to attract a lot of attention and a lot of money, I think it's going to be hard for somebody as a Republican taking on Amy Klobuchar to convince people to say, well, you also need to invest in my race. Although there are reasons why you would want to invest in his race, because if she has roughly or or, has a free show in terms of running, either she gets to campaign elsewhere across the country for Democrats, or B, um, if she racks up enormously large numbers, there's the potential there for a coattails effect from, from Amy Klobuchar that could help in terms of some of the other races in the state, including those congressional races. Well, she won every congressional district in the state. I know, and, and that could be a big factor out there. Although I have done some analysis over the last couple of few years and have found that actually it's less the Senate race and the governor's race or the presidency, but it's the congressional races seem to be the big drivers for turnout um, or um, for, in, in very odd ways. Um, I haven't been able to explain completely yet. But anyhow, the point is still potentially, given the fact that she won all eight congressional districts, given her popularity, um, she could have a big impact in terms of helping lots of candidates, such as, for example, down in Tim Waltz's district or in Eric Paulson's district or in, you know, in, in I don't think, um, um, Rick Nolan will need her quite as much, but even in helping Angie Craig, I think she could be an enormous asset in those districts. All right, and I know a lot of other Democrats are looking to her as well. Uh, the Republican or the, the race for governor is still very interesting, to say the least. You've got a lot of major players here. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of people think that Tim Walls will prevail and be the eventual nominee. Most people still think that, but it is still very early yet in terms of this. You know, we've had lots. Let's just go back to Hillary Clinton at the presidential level. Um, people who think are the are the front runners don't always emerge as people who get the nominations. Hillary Clinton, two thousand and eight, and sometimes people who look like they're very very good candidates stumble once they actually get on a statewide stage. Tim Waltz has not had to campaign on a statewide stage yet. He hasn't had to compete, you know, um, and debate with other Democrats. He comes from a somewhat conservative district, and the urban liberals, you know, in the Twin Cities, which really sort of dominate, you know, you know, you know DFL politics, 
may not be as attracted to him as somebody else. And so with a very crowded field, you know, we have a field of, I don't know, what's the number at this point? It's you know, hard to keep track of. Yeah, I think, I think there's got to be somewhere around seven to eight to nine or ten Democrats who have already said they're going to run, or and there's probably a few more who might run at this point, um, is that there's no guarantee that he gets the nomination. I do think there are some that are a lot of people who are galvanizing around him, but, for example, people such as Rebecca Otto, um, you know, who has won, what, statewide race now, what, three times, if I remember correctly? Two or right. Three, three times um, 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 shouldn't be ruled out. Plus, we have people such as Aaron Murphy. We've got... Chris Coleman. Chris Coleman. We've got, we've got um, Paul Thiessen, former Speaker of the House. I mean, it's a very crowded race. <laughs> I was going to say is that, I was going to say, it seems like just about everybody in the legislature um, 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 who's in leadership positions in the Democratic Party is, is running. And so the upshot is is that with that many candidates, um, it's, it, 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 it could be interesting and no guarantee that Waltz gets it, but there certainly are a lot of people um, who, who, are, who are running. And I think on both sides at this point, both the Democrats and Republicans, I don't think there is a clear front, front runner at this point. And I would still have to come back and say that there are many variables that could affect the possibilities in terms of who looks good or who looks bad in terms of the gubernatorial race. Among them, a big event that occurred this past week, which was on Monday, where the Minnesota Supreme Court heard the dispute between Governor Dayton um, and, and the state legislature over his line-item veto of the legislative funding. And even though Dayton's not running, even though his, his lieutenant governor's not running, I think the resolution of that case could have implications in terms of um, how other how people such as Kurt Dow, Speaker of the House Republican, how it might affect his political fortunes too. Well, I think I think people would think it's just a matter of time before he gets in, and I, I think that's the case as well. But you know, in terms of that, because that is a big deal that that argument before the Supreme Court. You were at that argument, yes. weren't you? Yes, I was there. I was there. Okay. Yes, and because I, I was not at that one. I was at the uh, arguments uh, before the district court right. where. Uh, the Republicans won, the governor lost. How did you, well, let me ask you this, how did you think it went this time around before the Supreme Court? I still think, that, that, well, both, well, both sides, the justices, as, as typical, asked them very, very tough questions. And I still think that what the court is very worried about here, and I think they asked this several times in, in a variety of ways, they said, well, if we sustain the governor's veto here, What's to prevent a future malicious governor from not funding the courts if they disagree with what the courts are doing? Basically rephrasing it, couldn't a future governor, if we rule in favor of Dayton here, now line item veto out the judiciary? And I do not believe that the governor's attorney, Sam Hansen, um, was really able to explain um, and respond to that very well. And so I, I, at the end of the day, still think that the governor's going to lose but what was interesting is that the four Dayton appointees seem to be looking for a way to perhaps narrow that victory um, for the legislature in terms of they kept asking whether or not the legislature was in part responsible for their problem here because they adjourned before um, the governor actually did the veto. I do think in the end of the day, though, this, you know, unless the four Dayton appointees vote straight partisan politics, and that would not be good in the state if they did that. Um, I still think the governor loses, and I don't think the governor's attorney could address that worry that the courts have 
about the fact that this sets precedent if they were to rule for the governor, that he could do the same thing to them in the judiciary. All right. Chatting with Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. Let's uh, take a break, and then when we come back, let's talk about the Minneapolis mayor election. It is a big deal, and once again, we will see ranked choice voting. Uh, Professor David Schultz, uh, as he is an expert on so many things, is an expert on ranked choice voting. Uh, we'll get an explainer on that and take a look at another very crowded field. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It is uh, 848 in the Twin Cities, 73 degrees. Uh, the Twins are now beating the Royals 14 to nothing. That's almost as bad as the 98 to nothing St. John's College of St. Scholastica football game today. Anyway, uh, Professor David. to nothing? What's that? 98 to nothing? 98 to nothing. Yeah, I, I, I was, I, I mean, I asked uh, Eric and um, Steve when they were leaving. I was like, is that a record? And they, they, they were trying to see if it was. But yes, that was the score in a football game today. St. John's beating College of St. Scholastica 98 to nothing. Wow. I know. <laughs> Not good. I'm just glad it wasn't Hamlin. All right. All right. There you go. <laughs> and St. John's is pretty good. Uh, let me ask you. Um, Ranked choice voting, once again, uh, the, the city elections in the city of Minneapolis will be done under ranked choice voting. You actually wrote the book on ranked choice voting for the city of Minneapolis. You, you, you kind of wrote the report on it. What is ranked choice voting? Because I, I still think it's weird. I know a lot of people think that it helps you know, you know, lesser candidates or whatever, but, but explain what it is. Well, what ranked choice voting allows you to do when you vote is to be able to, at least in the city of Minneapolis, designate up to three different candidates um, that you would like to see for mayor. And so what you would do is go in and say that, let's say, for example, your first choice is, um, I would really, really want to cast my ballot for, for Betsy Hodges. And then I say, okay, if, I, if Betsy Hodges doesn't win, who is my second choice? And let us say, for example, it might be Tom Hoke. And then maybe my third choice might be um, um, Levy, um, Levy Pounds or something like that. And so, so you get to pick your, your top three candidates. And what happens is when the ballots are counted, if somebody on the first round of balloting wins 50% plus one of the votes, that's it. That person of, of those first, first place votes. For when they first count it, and if they win for first place, then the race is all over. It's, it's done at that point. But if nobody wins you know, a majority of, of, the, of the first round votes, then what happens is that the person who, who received the fewest number of, of votes in the first round has his or her um, name removed from the ballot, and then their votes are, are the votes for that person are transferred to um, other candidates based upon the second choice preference for um, the people who voted for them. So, for example, if for example um, I had voted, let's say, for um, Representative Dean um, um, as 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 my um, second choice. And, um, then the votes would transfer to him. Got it. Um, got, and so what will happen is that then they'll recount all the votes. If somebody wins a majority, then the race is over. The whole idea here is to say that um, that people should be able to both be able to rank who they want to have in terms of first, second, third choices. Two, it's to ensure that whoever gets elected gets a majority of, of, of the vote in the election. And then there are some other arguments that are made in terms of the support for ranked choice voting, that it helps third-party candidates, because it addresses what I call really still the, the spoiler effect, or I'm going to call it still the nadir effect. You know, many people going back, you know, 17 years now, say that 
the people who voted for Ralph Nader cost the election for for um, for Al Gore in Florida, and so many people. Well, are, you certainly could argue that <laughs> those who voted for Ralph Nader in Florida in 2000 did cost, of course, Al Gore the presidency. You could you could certainly make that argument, and so many people are hesitant to vote for a third party candidate for fear that voting for that third party candidate may mean the election of somebody who they really don't want, and so in theory, ranked choice voting allows you to say, "Gosh, I'm going to vote for my first choice." First, um, and then if if that person doesn't get a, doesn't get elected, then I can rank as my second choice um, the person who's my let's say my my, my the, the lesser evil or my second choice. And so there's some argument there being made that it will help people in terms of of encouraging both people to show up to vote because you'll always be able to vote for your first choice. And two, um, in theory, it will encourage you to vote for that third, you know, third, maybe a third party or non-traditional candidate. So it, it sounds more complex than it really is. The way I describe it another way is you go into a restaurant and you have three options, you know, you know, chicken, beef, or fish. And you say, well, chicken's my first choice, beef's my second, fish is my third. If the waiter comes back and says, well, we're out of chicken, you say, okay, fine. I'll go with beef. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and that's the, I'm serious. That's the, sim- that's the more simple way of explaining it. Now, now, in the very first time that Minneapolis used ranked choice voting, um, it really had no impact whatsoever. This was when R.T. Rybick was running for re-election. He overwhelmingly run. Um, oh, that's right. You know, I forgot that that, that, that was actually in place. Yes, right. And he won like something about 70, what, 70 percent of the vote. I can't remember what the exact number. So it had no impact there. Um, it was this, it was the election four years ago that many people remember where there were 38 people on the ballot. Right, because I think, it was, wasn't it the, the, the qualifying fee to, to, to get into the race was, just, I mean, it was literally $10 or sure. something. Right, right. And so now it's tightened up a little bit. Now it's, so there's not as many people on the ballot. But what I still think is going to be interesting here is that you have Betsy Hodges, who who is 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 not a very popular incumbent. You know, she you know during the caucuses in Minneapolis convention, I should say the convention, um, didn't do very well. I can't remember if she came in, maybe she came in third if I remember correctly, but I'm not sure now. Um, but not very popular. However, her opposition is not unified. She has. Um, lots of people, anywhere from you know Jacob Fry to Hope to to um, Dean to Levy Pounds, all with bases of support. And I would argue right now that given the fact that the opposition to, to Hodges hasn't galvanized around one candidate um, so far, but this may happen now in the next couple of months here, is that a lot of these pe- people might go in and vote and say, well, I don't like Hodges as my first choice but I like her perhaps as my second choice, or I have no idea who these other people are who are running, but I know who Hodges is, what the heck, I'll vote for her, something like that. Right. So I'm still not ruling out the fact that Hodges might still win, despite the fact that she seems to be tremendously unpopular in Minneapolis. Right. Well, there were a lot of issues, and certainly, um, you know, there's a lot of controversies, and one of the latest things is the firing of Janae Harteau. Right. It looks like the chief is probably going to get a sizable severance package, yeah. which I think was coming down the pike anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what happens when you fire somebody who's in, in that kind of a position. But it, it, it will be interesting to see, and it shouldn't be as lengthy as it was last time because there were just so many candidates the last time. Right. I think, again, 38 last time. I don't know how many are officially on the ballot. And it took days. Yeah, it did. It took days and days last time. I think this time what we're looking at, I think there's no more. I don't think there's, is, are there less than 10 candidates who have filed? Yes, yes I believe I so, yeah. 10. 
So, so my guess is is that we're going to see it move fairly rapidly at this point. Um, it's still, we're still, I don't think we're going to know on election night because I would be surprised if anybody emerges with 50% plus one, an outright majority on election night. My guess is it'll probably take you know three or four days um, to be able to figure out um, who the mayor is. Um, but but still, this becomes the whole strategy of ranked choice voting in terms of people asking. And Hodges may be doing this, maybe asking people, okay, even if I'm not your first choice, can I be your second choice? Your- Which is, and I guess that's the thing that, that that's so different. I mean, it really is a different way of completely different way of campaigning. It is. It is banking on the idea that that you're hoping to be able to um, to if you can't outright win it, know that it's going to go to a second or third round, and to make um, or get people to think of you as that second choice. And again, right now, I you know if you were to go out in the streets of Minneapolis, I would suspect. I'm mean, sort of my guess here. Lots of people might not know who a lot of the other candidates are who right. are running for mayor. They know who Hodges is, but they don't know the others. Now, how that's going to change in the next two months will be interesting because, again, I don't see um, right now any anti-Hodges um, candidate or non-Hodges candidate as the front runner um, that's coalescing votes from all the anti-Hodge people. All right. Well, listen, Professor David Schultz, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your insights this evening. And uh, check out your blog, folks. Uh, check out David Schultz's blog, Schultz's Take. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem. Happy Labor Day to all. Absolutely. Uh, that's right. It is a long holiday weekend. Always a pleasure to talk to Professor David Schultz. I do want to give a shout out to the producer of this show, Susan Blanche. Thank you so much for uh, producing the show, getting all the guests lined up. And a big shout out also to the two studio coordinators, Kevin Reed and also Jonathan Lowe. A special shout out to Jonathan who helped when a guest didn't show earlier this evening. So, folks, keep it right here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T Mobile.com.